Hey everyone, Gil Gross here, and it is time for another mailbag where I answer your observations, your comments, your questions, your concerns about tennis and other stuff, and I respond to those comments. It is the first Monday of a major, of course, with Australia being ahead by by one day with the time zones. We are already underway, day one in the books. Day two is about to begin as of recording. I am live on YouTube, by the way. Uh, figured figured I'd go live. Why not? Uh, although I, I will not be taking any live comments unless they are super chats because uh, I posted in the YouTube community tab and nearly 100 of you left your comments. So thank you for everyone joining me live. But I am uh, going to run through these comments that were posted in the YouTube community tab, which you can find on the home page of my channel. So here we go. Let us start here with this comment from Alex James. And I'll go about 30 minutes, by the way. Uh, Alex says, Gil, do you think Novak should do a sit-down interview with someone and explain everything that has happened and let everyone know his side of the story? Or should he keep quiet for a while and let the dust settle on this unfortunate situation? It's a good question. And by the way, hopefully this will be the last day of discussing Novak. And then we can uh, move on, cover the tournament, and revisit the the Novak situation, which I, I could say is over. It's not. It's kind of ongoing with other tournaments and vaccine mandates that could be that could lie ahead in Rome at Roland Garros at the U.S. Open. I'm not really sure what's going on in the U.K. for uh, for Wimbledon. I'm, I have no knowledge of that, but uh, it feels like this story will continue. But while the Australian Open progresses, hopefully we will not be talking about this at all. But I have not spoken on the channel since the since the final decision was made by Justice Alisop that obviously ruled in favor of the minister's cancellation of Novak's visa. I'm not going to get into it really, and I'll just answer the question, which is should Novak do an interview? I, I think no. I think not. First of all, off the top of my head, I don't know— that there's a lot to clear up. I think because of the nature of court records and how court records are public and because that and because we've had two trials where basically everything has been laid out, we've also had a lot of reporting done on everything that's happened. I don't know that there's anything that's really unclear in this situation. I feel like everyone has a good idea of what's gone on and what's happened. One question I can think of that will be asked to Novak that he hasn't needed to answer yet is what were his plans? Was he planning on skipping the Australian Open before he tested positive on December 16th? That's something that we don't know. But all in all, I can't think of too many things that really require clearing up at this point that I feel like it would be wise for Novak to inject himself into the spotlight again because quite frankly, there is surely a fatigue when it comes to this story. It lasted over 10 days. There were twists, there were turns. It was in the national, uh, international media. You know, it, it broke through the tennis bubble. And I really do feel like the tennis community certainly is really ready to, to try to take a break from this, try to focus on 
the the tennis at the moment you know there it only there's only four majors a year it's a special time in our sport and i think djokovic is wise to let the tennis world move on for now and not insert himself back into the spotlight so i don't think he should do a sit down interview at this time i think that he should kind of let it pass let me just make sure everything's working on the stream. Yes, it is. Thank you, everyone, for joining me. All right. Let's move on to SJ's comment. SJ says, is it kind of unfair that they didn't reshuffle the draw with Novak being gone? Now Novak's quarter, which was already a little bit lacking, is no one's quarter, and it's literally wide open, whereas the other quarters, such as Zverev's and Tsitsipas's, feel like the ATP finals. This was interesting, and then I'll get to S- uh, the second part of SJ's comment. Um, they already delayed the order of play, but the way the timeline worked, it was getting really, really late. And they needed to finalize the order of play and thus, or therefore, finalize the draw. And I really don't think you can let one player hold up that process. I, I don't agree with that. I don't care who it is or, or I, obviously, I, I don't care who it is because we're talking about the number one seed and the the nine-time champion. And I don't think it was appropriate for the Australian Open to delay the order of play for, for one player, regardless. And... Stuff happens is kind of my take on this. When it comes to the draw, it's not always perfectly symmetrical. It's not always perfectly fair. You have situations, for example, such as um, the the five seed being in the same quarter as the one seed, right? That could happen because you have a you have chance. You have randomness in a draw. And stuff happens. Players get injured. Players have to withdraw. Players might get COVID at some point. Players get upset. You can't really worry, in my opinion, and bend over backwards to try to make the draw perfect. The reality is, to win the Australian Open, you're probably going to need to beat a lot of really, really good players. Or in the case of Novak's quarter, now you have an opportunity for a Gail Monfils, for a Tommy Paul, for a... Pedro Martinez for a, uh, I think Carreno Busta is in the other, yeah, yeah, never, not, not Carreno Busta, uh, but, but the, the players I just mentioned, uh, Bublik, perhaps, Monfils Bublik in the second round, that, that should be interesting, I favor Monfils, you have, uh, Oscar Otta, who's had some good runs, and is a very interesting player, who, uh, had a good 2021, Lorenzo Sanigo, yet to really, make a deep run at a major. Am I like mad that these players have opportunities now? I'll throw in Kachmanovic if he's a better player than he was last year. Am I mad that these players have an opportunity here? Not really. It is what it is. Such is life. Uh, I can't, I can't get too upset about that. And it's never going to be something that really bothers me. Or I think is something that should be really emphasized that you have perfect draw symmetry and perfect, perfect fairness. And by the way, if tennis really valued that, then they would do something that my co-host on three, a tennis show, Amy Lundy always advocates for, which is to make it so that the, the seedings are, are always the same. So the one is always with the eight 
and the two is with the seven and the three is with the six and the four is with the five. And then you can continue to do that. You can actually make a draw that is a lot less random by taking the formula out of it. I'm not in favor of that because I don't want to see the same matchups. I want to see mixing and matching. I want to see different players in each other's quarters. And especially with like Roland Garros and Wimbledon, which is only a month apart. I don't really want to see the same players um, in the in the same sections of the draw all the time. So that's my take on it. So I just want to pay this off now by talking about Djokovic's section of the draw. And then again, we will move on from Djokovic and probably won't revisit this topic for a very, very long time. Uh, But let me go to Matt Bradley's comment. It says, the first quarter genuinely looks like a challenger event. Surely this is Monfils' time to shine. Could he pull off an upset and win? He is... My pick, I believe, to, well, I think it's Tommy Paul, but it's definitely Monfils or Tommy Paul as my pick. And if I were to choose one, and I haven't really forced myself to do that in my mind yet, uh, I would probably choose Paul. I'm just, again, I'm not I'm not very trusting when it comes to Monfils' ability to just hold up physically and, and mentally in best of five. But I will say this about Monfils as a whole. At the time he lost his motivation after the pandemic hit, he was losing some speed, losing his legs, but playing some of the best tennis of his life. And that's because his shot selection was the best it had ever been. Because as he's matured and as he's lost a little bit of his his athletic explosiveness, he has naturally started to rely on on his ball striking a little bit more and he's attacking short balls better and his court position is better and he's not making rallies physical for no reason as much as he used to. He's playing much smarter. So I'm a fan of what Gail Monfils' game has turned into and I really do think that he has an opportunity to continue to play well in his old age, which might sound like a bit of a hot take because he is someone who has traditionally relied on his athleticism. But again, his point construction throughout his career has been terrible. His shot selection throughout his career has been terrible. That stuff's getting better. And I think that can kind of offset the loss of of speed from Monfils' perspective. But I like Tommy Paul. I think he's in an advantageous section. Uh, looked had a good win against Kukushkin in round one. He's coming forward. He's a really good athlete. He's physical. His uh, he absorbs pace very well. Redirects well on the backhand. His forehand is is kind of the key that it needs to be reliable. It needs to be consistent. It isn't always, but he's come forward a lot now, and he's used his athleticism at the net, and he's finishing well. He's always defended well. He's got a great second serve, which I like a lot. So I kind of feel like he makes the quarterfinal, but by far the favorite to to reach the semifinal in Djokovic's quarter is coming from the other eighth, where you have Alcaraz and Berrettini and Pablo Carreño Busta and Sebastian Corda. And all four of those guys are probably better than any of the players in the other eighth, in the top eighth of Djokovic's quarter. 
ultimately, I think Alcaraz comes through. He's my pick to make the semifinal. And that's kind of the big thing that changes with this tournament from a bracketology perspective, as far as my predictions are concerned, when it comes to Djokovic being out of the draw. I think Berrettini and Alcaraz in round three is going to be an inflection point in the draw. I do think Karina Busta deserves a shout out. It's just he hasn't played very well traditionally at the Australian Open. In fact, he's never made a quarterfinal. I believe he's made like one fourth round. That surprises me. I don't know why that is, but it is what it is. And at, at this stage in his career, after we've gotten the results over and over and over again, it's hard for me to really feel like Karina Busta is going to be a favorite to come out of this quarter when he he just doesn't play well at this event generally. Corda, uh, Corda's still a bit of a wild card for me. I haven't seen him that much recently, but he looked incredible against Cam Nori, who seems to be a little bit scarred or seemed to be a little bit scarred from what happened at the ATP Cup and had almost no confidence and Corda looked incredible. So I think it's... It's gonna be it's gonna be intriguing to see what happens in that eighth, but I say I say Alcaraz comes through. Looked unbelievable against Alejandro Tabilo. His return is is so good, and it's the kind of player that Berrettini can can really struggle against. I don't see a lot of advantages that Berrettini has over Alcaraz if Carlos is gonna be able to get that serve back, which I think he can. Berrettini, by the way, was there for the taking against Nakashima yesterday. Mateo was was not feeling well, but not playing well, and Nakashima certainly should have won the third set and gone up two sets to one. And the forehand, which is the problem in Nakashima's game, totally let him down. He missed a uh, he missed a rally ball neutral forehand up uh, set point. He missed a he didn't miss he he had a look at a forehand pass that he just hit it right through the center of the court and gave Berrettini a volley, and really should have made the pass there. And then in the in the tiebreak, I think there was also a, an opportunity that went by the wayside for Nakashima. He just wasn't clutch. Uh, he, he didn't play badly. Nakashima didn't play badly, but when he got opportunities, ooh, he he was not clutch. And Berrettini ends up getting through that match at less than his best. It certainly didn't convince me to change my pick that Alcaraz is going to beat him in round three. Certainly not. So that does it for the uh, again the bracketology portion of uh, of this, and now I think we we move on officially from Djokovic. In terms of by the way, in terms of how I feel about the whole Novak situation as a whole, everything that I said in my last video and my Monday match analysis, all those things really are unchanged. So my main points were that. In my in my last Monday match analysis, my main points were that everybody looks terrible. Everybody made mistakes here. Nobody comes out looking good, and I stand by that. And I I went through all the mistakes that everyone has made in this situation to create this mess. I think that's true. And then in my last video, I talked about ultimately that his visa was recanceled, and my argument was not uh, my argument was basically that this has turned from something that was rule based and guideline-based to something that's become political, which, in my opinion, is unfortunate, regardless of if you agree with the politics, which you can, if you disagree with the politics, which you can. It just became very clear to me that this uh, the, the sequence of events became very politically driven, which, in my opinion, was unfortunate. Okay? And uh, that's it. Let's move on from Novak. Let's get to everything else. 
This comment from Mary Sky. What do you think about the Netflix thing and the fact they already were filming Stefanos and Matteo, but Zverev didn't even know about it? <laughs> I'm afraid they're going to create rivalries that don't even exist like they did in F1. Overall, really happy about it. So funny. Okay, I'm a huge fan of Drive to Survive. I just want to throw that out there. I think it's great. Uh, it made me kind of an F F1 fan. I was pretty bad about, I've been pretty bad about watching races live, I will say, but I I'm into it. I love it. And I'm really, really happy that they're trying this. There's no guarantee that it's going to be a success just because it worked in F1. Doesn't mean it's going to work in tennis. Doesn't mean that everybody's going to love it or that it's going to be well done. But the, the production team is the same. A lot of the same producers that were involved in drive to survive and Tennis lacks access and storytelling, and that is what changed for F1. It, they they took down the curtains, they took down the secretiveness and the behind-closed-door stuff, and they were like, we are giving the fans access. We are going to tell stories. We are going to show these personalities, and we're going to tell stories in a, in a way that is kind of a full disclosure. And in tennis, I think there is a, a that that's completely necessary, and the dynamic that will likely transpire from this kind of content being out there is there's going to be new fans created. There's going to be new attachments uh, that are created to players from things that are outside of what they do on the court and what they do. In terms of their results. You know. Um, I, I don't think that there's going to be as much of a. Because there, there's no really super popular players on tour that don't win a ton. The most popular players besides I guess like Kyrgios who's brought a ton of attention to himself off the court. The most popular players are just the best players. And I don't think that necessarily has to be the case. I think in a sport like MMA, where the media is provided a lot more access and there's a lot more personality with the fighters, you have a lot of fighters who who lose a lot of fights and they're not great champions, but they're incredibly popular. Look at Nate Diaz, for example. I know in F1, Lando Norris has a massive fan base because people like the guy. It doesn't mean he wins every race. He doesn't. He's not one of the best two he he's not he's not Verstappen he's not Hamilton but people love him because uh, there because of storytelling and because of access and because of personality and that is what is going to happen here so I'm gonna have more thoughts about this I'm gonna have more coverage of this I want to really stay on top of this story and uh, but until then that's all I want to say in terms of Stefanos or sorry in terms of Zverev not knowing about it I don't know pretty funny. It's off to a funny start because it's pretty funny. Um, yeah, I'm sure there's going to be some. That's what that's what shows do, by the way, in terms of creating rivalries that don't exist. Yeah, it's a reality show. No, it's not a reality show. It no, it is a reality show, isn't it? Yeah. So they are going to find drama. That's their job. But fans love drama. They love it and. They sometimes pretend not to love it, but they love it. Here's a comment from Sherlock Holmes. 19, no, 1698. Hi, Gil, you predicted Rublev to be out of the top 10, but I really wish for him to be a top five player as I feel he's one of the most hardworking and dedicated players on tour. 
Everyone says that he has to develop an all-around game in order to improve, and we all know he needs to improve. But why do you think there's been a lack of implementation? And if you were Rublev slash Rublev's coach, what would you suggest to him? I feel that Rublev's and Sinner's games are a bit similar, strong baseliners. So moving forward, do you think that Sinner's path slash trajectory would be like Rublev's trajectory? Or do you think that Sinner is going to improve an all-around game? Love your show and keep up the good work. Thank you, Sherlock. Um, good comment. Implementation of, of skill building or, or working on weaknesses. This is complicated, I would say, but there there are examples of, of natural limitations and there are certain players that have weaknesses that are just always kind of going to stay weaknesses. And at, in cases like that, it's about what do we do tactically and how do we control the things we can control? So in my opinion... In terms of Rublev not being a very creative player with great hands, with great feel, with great touch, he's not very good with continental grip, he doesn't have an awesome slice, he doesn't have that much variety, I don't ever think he'll be a player who has phenomenal skills when it comes to variety. I don't see him ever getting to that point. That's okay. There are other things within his control that he can improve that are going to make him a better player. Fitness is one of those things. Mental is one of those things. Improving tactics to a point where he is finding his strengths more is one of those things. So it's difficult to it's difficult to really understand kind of why players have certain weaknesses, but it's not as if it's not as if John Isner is ever going to have was ever going to have a great return of serve or he was never going to be a good mover. So how did Isner improve? Just as an example, and he's not anything like Rublev. I'm just creating an example that I think is easy to grasp. Isner improved because he figured out that in order to get the best out of his capabilities and his assets, he needed to get more aggressive. He needed to hide his weak backhand, hide his weak movement by making sure that anytime he got a forehand short in the court, he was going to finish. He was going to never play defense or never play from defense or from neutral ever again for the remainder of that point. Anytime he got a short ball, there was no coming back. It was full out clear-minded offensive aggression or on the second serve return. It was going to be going for damage, point-ending damage off the second serve return, especially when it's a forehand, every single time. And that's how he got the most out of his game. It was never become a better mover, become a better returner. It was, here's what you do well, now make, now turn that into becoming a better player. And Rublev will probably and likely do a lot of that. I think mentally... Um, there's a gap between, or there's a difference between Sinner and Rublev, where Sinner is very calm and very poised. And Rublev has great competitiveness. He's got a lot of fire, but he goes dark on himself very easily. So Rublev is the kind of player, if you start to beat him really well, 
and he starts to lose, I think he kind of goes away. I think he starts to get really down on himself. He starts to beat himself up. Uh, the confidence goes away, and that makes him a weaker player, for example. Sinner is a little bit more even-keeled, and I think he's a, a little bit ahead of Rublev mentally. And then physically, I think Rublev has been worn down, and he can work on the endurance, and he can he can get a little bit better from a physical perspective. He's worked on that, but I think those are the things that are more in Rublev's control. I don't think he's ever going to be great backhand slice, great drop shot, great volleys. Second serve is another thing that I think he can get better at. He's never going to be Mr. Variety. So I really think that that is not the, the right thing to focus on, and I'll leave it at that. Next one from Quality Shot. Does Nadal have a realistic chance at the Australian Open? I see the favorites as Medvedev top tier, then Zverev, then Tsitsipas, and Nadal, the tier below, then the rest. So Quality Shot, check out his channel, by the way. Good YouTube channel. I'm, I'm on, I go on there um, a lot and enjoy uh, his work. Medvedev in the top tier, then Zverev, then Tsitsipas and Nadal. Those are the tiers. I think that's pretty good. I would put Medvedev and Zverev probably in the same tier. But I agree with kind of then Tsitsipas and Nadal in the same tier below them. Both have health concerns coming in. Ultimately, I'll take this comment and I'll focus on the first part, which is does Nadal have a realistic chance at the Australian Open? I think yes. To say that he doesn't have a realistic shot, that would be that would be a strong statement because realistic is not a high bar. Is he my pick? Definitely not. I'm concerned about his level of confidence under pressure over the course of the last year, maybe year and a half. He has not been as clutch in matches as I would want him to be, and I just think he needs some time to work through that. That's gonna. That's match play. You need match play. You got to come through matches. I thought it started to get better, but the reality is that's one of my concerns: is that he hasn't been great under pressure. Another one of my concerns is that he has lost a ton of training time. He has not had a good last four months, and on hard court, you need the best version of Nadal. These guys have gotten too good. Medvedev and Zverev and Tsitsipas, as we saw last year at this very event. Look, Nadal came in with that back injury last year. He was 90%. Looked good against everyone else. Against Tsitsipas, weren't going to win 90%. 90% fitness, good for two sets. He started to get, well, first he had some choky moments in the third set, lost the third set, didn't have the physicality to finish the deal against a young, fit, and playing very well at Tsitsipas. And I see this I see a similar thing happen this year. Happening this year. If if Nadal's at a, not at a hundred percent with this field, I'm never gonna pick him. And I'm not confident he's at a hundred. Nothing I saw in Melbourne, which he won, which is great, which is admirable. Nothing I saw at that event suggested that he's at a hundred percent right now. And I just need to see him come in based on recent history. I need to see him coming in with more confidence, more wins over really good players on hard courts for, for me to pick him. But does he have a realistic chance? Yes. He's Rafael Nadal. He that, That's pretty much all that needs to be said about that word, does he have a realistic chance. 
Oh, wow. We're coming up on four o'clock. All right. Let me try to get through some of these pretty quickly. Hi, Gil. Love your show. Do you think Dimitrov can be, again, a top 10 player or is his time over? In your opinion, which were his strengths through the entire 2017 when he won the ATP finals, finished year number three in the world? And what does he need to work on to perform well this season? Always a pleasure listening. Best wishes from Bulgaria. Thank you. Well, Dimitrov needs to stay healthy. That's it. That's the, that's going to be the determining factor. He's had back issues. He's had elbow issues. He's had shoulder issues. And it's jacked up his career. There's no, no two ways about it. You know, you look at last year. You look at what kind of fitness he was in when he lost to Karatsev at the Australian Open. You look at his fitness level when he lost to Marcos Giron at Roland Garros. Awful back limitations in both of those matches. Uh, I believe the foot knocked him out of the U.S. Open. So it's very hard to build up confidence and create momentum when you're constantly being disrupted and thwarted by injury. From a tennis perspective, the first serve needs to be there. It's been up and down. Sometimes he's served at low percentages. He's had issues and uh, with just kind of getting a lot out of that first serve. But I think it's been pretty good recently. I like what I've seen from that from that serve. And then the next thing is is the forehand mostly. And the problem with Dimitrov's overall game, you see a lot of players use their backhand slice and they use that backhand slice as a setup shot. Whether you go to the women's side and you look at Ashley Barty, you go to the men's side and you look at Matteo Berrettini or by far most famously Roger Federer. That backhand slice sets up these killer forehands, and it does an excellent job at that. But sometimes Dimitrov's forehand just leaves a lot to be desired, and he can lose confidence on that side. It becomes a a shot that is not potent enough, not deadly enough. And that's where Dimitrov, I think, starts to lose his way in terms of how am I winning points here from an offensive perspective? He's got great movement. He's got great defense. He's very consistent. But how do I win points on my own terms? If my forehand, if his forehand isn't as confident as it needs to be, which sometimes it's not, if his serve isn't huge, we know his drive backhand doesn't create much offense at all. And he just gets into a point where it feels like, okay, what am I doing here offensively? And that's when I think his confidence dissipates and he can go the wrong direction. But at Indian Wells, for example, where I thought he looked great, forehand was awesome, first serve was good, so athletic, defense on point, healthy. You can have a top 10 level player in Grigor Dimitrov on hard courts especially. All right. Here's one from Shockwave Zero. After watching a video from Cult Tennis last year, my understanding is that in order to break even, you have to be somewhere in the top 70. And then even you're barely breaking even due to all the expenses. I would like to hear your take on um, how much finances factor into how players decide to uh, play a tournament or not, as well as why it should. I was excited to see this question because it gave me a chance to uh, talk about Carlos Alcaraz. And by the way, I'm going to answer this question. Then I'm going to answer Medvedev versus uh, Kyrgios. I'm going to talk about that matchup, which is a potential round two match, um, assuming both Medvedev and Kyrgios win today. Um, And then I will take a super chat if any of you guys want to throw in a super chat. Otherwise, that will be it. 
Um, all right. So this question about expenses, really simple. By the way, Cult Tennis is awesome. Love it. If you are not inside the top 70, you got to play. Very simple. Or, or if you're not, you know, most of these guys, they need that week-to-week paycheck. And they get it as long as they, especially if they're playing tour-level events, even if they lose in the first round, it's not like in golf when you miss the cut, you don't, I'm pretty sure they come away with nothing. Uh, you need those checks. So this is a big deal on tour, in my opinion. The rest, the recovery, the ability to manage the schedule at the top of the sport is a huge advantage. I mean, massive the ability to spend weeks on the training court where you can experiment, where you can be in no pressure situations and work on things, or the ability to spend two, three weeks off as some of the very top players do. And in that first week or that second week, you can focus on just spending a lot of time in the gym, building up some, some strength and making sure your body is right. These are massive and making sure your body is recovered by taking a week off. These are unbelievable advantages that the top players have over the players who are having to collect a paycheck every week in order to kind of sustain themselves. And, uh, I think it really factors into the, the rich, the rich gets richer dynamic that we have in the sport. But I also think that some players should be investing in their long-term prospects like Carlos Alcaraz did this year. Uh, Alcaraz, if you notice, did not travel to Australia until last week and did not play any of the warm-up events. So didn't play in Melbourne or Adelaide or Sydney. And the reason was he got COVID at the end of the season and him and his team and Juan Carlos Ferrero decided that they needed some more time. And they wanted to hit the gym and get stronger and they needed that extended offseason. That makes me so happy to see that. I mean, what a fantastic decision that sounds like. Because what players will tell you, the offseason is when you really have an opportunity to build up your body muscularly. You get to lift heavy. You get to push the limits. You get to make the body sore. In order to build muscle, you have to... Building muscle is a strenuous activity that is not ideal if you want to perform at your peak on the tennis court the next day. So players are not lifting heavy weight and building their muscle in the middle of tournament play during the season. You got to do that during the off season. And for Alcaraz and his team to recognize that and to invest in the future, to throw aside those short-term paychecks and the short-term results and the rankings points and to be like, look, this is a long-term play. We have a long season ahead of us. Let's hit the gym. Let's lift heavy and get those muscles sore and build muscle. I just love to see that kind of decision-making, and I, I think more players could probably benefit from that. But in general, I think that this is a, a an important dynamic to think of, which is that these players don't these players play too much, and they have to because of the financial uh, setup in tennis. Question from KH. You never mentioned the potential Medvedev versus Kyrgios matchup in round two in your preview. Do you think it can end up 
becoming a similar match to Kyrgios versus team last year or another early round beatdown by Medvedev. So, I know I didn't mention Kyrgios in my preview. I probably should have, perhaps. Uh, but the reason was that um, I haven't seen him play in six months. And I just, I generally do, I generally make Kyrgios earn my attention. So, that's kind of why I ignored him. But in all seriousness, and let's see how he looked. And I know he had COVID and I have no clue what kind of shape he's in. And that's why I just, I, I have a wait and see attitude with Kyrgios. Like if he shows me that we should really be paying attention to him, then okay. Does he, does he often show to be an incredibly dangerous opponent in the first two rounds of a major? Absolutely. And then it's like clockwork, his body breaks down, and that's it. So that's what you get with Nick Kyrgios. But certainly, the fact that he can draw or that he will draw the technically the top seed at this event in round two is certainly notable. And from a matchup perspective, I think that he's a very difficult matchup for Daniil Medvedev. And both times that both times they've played, um, Kyrgios has defeated Daniil Medvedev. One of them was in Rome 2019. That was really before Medvedev's rise. And then one of them was at the very start of Daniil Medvedev's rise. In Washington 2019, he went on to have an incredibly massive summer, and that was in the final. And I don't remember my—I know I covered that match. I don't remember exactly what the uh, tactical keys were. But I will say this. First of all, Nick is a tremendous spot server. He He's probably the best in the world when it comes to just hitting spots on the serve. He has that natural capability. And when it comes to Medvedev's return position, he's going to be able to drag him off the court with his spot serving really, really easily. Now, plenty of players can do this for for uh, for Medvedev. And you might ask, well, Gil, why isn't it really easy to beat Medvedev and his return position? Why don't you just serve out wide and then attack him from there when he's out of position? That second ball is actually really difficult because even though Medvedev is way off the court, even though Medvedev is out of position, he generally hits a strong and deep return, a very heavy and most importantly, deep service return. And a lot of players just can't do anything with it. They, they just don't, especially when it's on their backhand for, for a right-hander, they just can't hit an effective enough, enough build or finish off of that ball to actually gain an advantage in the rally. And Medvedev is able to recover and start the point. A player like Hugo Umber, a player like Hubert Hurkacz, a player like Federer, all of those players, I think, fall into a category that are a little bit different because they're really good at taking the ball early and hitting really precise redirections into the open court or perhaps even behind Daniil Medvedev to attack him when he's out of position, even when Medvedev is able to hit deep to especially their backhands. A guy like Hurkacz, who has a great backhand down the line, or someone like Umber, who's so good at changing direction and so good at hitting with precision and has that lefty can opener like Kyrgios will do on the deuce side. Umber does it on the ad side. I could really see Kyrgios doing a tremendous job of playing plus one tennis 
dragging Medvedev off the court and attacking him from there. Then you have some other issues, though, in that matchup. Like, Kyrgios' return is not good. It's one of his great weaknesses, his forehand return. Is Medvedev just going to be able to serve big to his forehand and get a ton of free points? Probably. Probably, yes. But I really do think that it is going to be a pretty good uh, match if Kyrgios is close to his best because I do think that there's a lot of things that that Nick can do in that matchup. And uh, let's see. You know, I, I think I'll probably do a, a post-match video on that one, and I won't, I won't delve into it much further than that on this occasion. All right. Um, so I see play has started. I will answer a couple of questions, um, and then we will call it a wrap or I think I'm pretty much done. Nothing, nothing really catching my eye. Um, so I appreciate you guys. And here's the plan. While I have all of you guys here, um, I am going to do every other day, I believe, uh, at the start of each round, I'm going to do a little bit of a live preview right before play at this time. So I'll do 3.30 to 4. I know I've gone over time here, but uh, I wanna, I'm want i going to do that, all right? I'm going to do a 30-minute preview daily, and I'm going to have post-match videos and single-topic videos periodically as well. And uh, And that's it. Make sure that you become a member that you hit that join button for $2 a month, if you please. It's it's obviously greatly appreciated. It really helps my situation and uh, making this channel more financially um, suitable. And it's uh, it's an awesome help. But of course, no, uh, no pressure there. Subscribe, like the video, share this video. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe and I'll see you next time. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean a cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini yeah. fridge. New episodes of Fly 
Eye on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts.